Zechariah, the 14th chapter, I'd like to begin the reading at the 16th verse, where this morning we'll consider the subject of horses' bells. Zechariah 14, hear now God's word. And it shall come to pass that every one that is left of all the nations that came up against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, Jehovah of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And it shall be that whoso of all the families of the earth goeth not up unto Jerusalem to worship the king, Jehovah of hosts, upon them there shall be no rain. And if the family of Egypt go not up and come not, neither shall it be upon them. There shall be the plague wherewith Jehovah will smite the nations that go not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that go not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. In that day shall there be upon the bells of the horses holy unto Jehovah. And the pots in Jehovah's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yea, every pot in Jerusalem and in Judah shall be holy unto Jehovah of hosts. And all they that sacrifice shall come and take of them and boil therein. And in that day there shall be no more a Canaanite in the house of Jehovah of hosts. And thus far the reading of God's word and the end of Zechariah's prophecy. Well, now, this is a strange way to end a biblical book, isn't it? Horses, bells, boiling pots, and no more Canaanites in the house of Jehovah. And Zechariah ends. It doesn't even explain it. There's, there's no summary of the prophecy. There's no talking about something that seems really <coughs> religious. There's no praise. There's... He just ends the book at this point. Is this appropriate for Zechariah to do this? I want to suggest to you that this is not just the end of the book abruptly ended, but it is the very climax of Zechariah's expectation of the Messianic kingdom. And it's only because we have a diminished view of what the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is all about that we don't get excited and see this as the climactic ending to this prophecy that it really is. As you know from the brochure for our conference and from what I've said already, I'd like to talk to you this morning about horses' bells. What could horses' bells have to do with anything about Christianity? Everything. And I hope that by the time we finish this morning, somehow by the grace of God, if I can be faithful to his word, your vision will be expanded and you will become excited and challenged about how far reaching the implications of the kingdom of Jesus Christ are. Verse 9 of this prophecy, chapter 14 says, And Jehovah shall be king over all the earth, and that day shall Jehovah be one and his name one. Zechariah is talking about a day when God will come to rule in the midst of his people. And in that day, he says, Jehovah will be king and king over all the earth and all will be united under him. Now, when will this happen? We have many schools of theology that would tell you that we're still waiting for that day to begin. You cannot square that putting off the kingdom of Jesus Christ to a future day, however, with the reading of the New Testament. You know, when we turn to the Gospels, the presentation they make of the Jesus of history is that he appears on the scene 
preaching the nearness of God's kingdom. You cannot find a Jesus in the Gospels that does not say the kingdom has come. That's where he begins his preaching. We see Jesus the wonder worker who shows the power of the kingdom. Jesus the savior who extends forgiveness in the kingdom. Jesus the prophet, Jesus the priest, and Jesus the king. In fact, when Jesus on that fateful day that the disciples were worried that they were going to die in a boat because it was being tossed about by the storms and here's Jesus sleeping down in the, in the uh, boat, in the heart of the boat. They wake him and say, don't you care that we are perishing? And Jesus gets up and he calms the water. But it's interesting, not only does he do this in such a marvelous way. Have you ever known anybody to be able to speak and the ocean just goes still? Jesus does that, but he rebukes the waves. Jesus speaks with the authority of a king. Jesus sees that all things in creation owe him allegiance and must submit to his will. He rebukes the waves, and they are calm. And Jesus, when he casts out demons, rebukes the demons. They're worried that their time is short, and it is. Because Jesus has come, and now there's going to be a revolution in the spiritual powers of this earth. So that where Satan previously dominated the hearts and the minds of men through superstition and idolatry and dreadful sin, now Jesus comes with the power to cast out demons and to put them down. And so one day Jesus cast out demons out of a man and his opponents, bitter men, come and accuse him of doing so by the power of Beelzebub, by the power of the devil. And Jesus shows from a logical perspective how absurd that opinion is. He says, well, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And if Satan be divided against himself, if I'm doing this by the power of Satan and I'm destroying his work, then Satan's in real trouble, isn't he? That wouldn't make any sense at all. Now Jesus corrects their interpretation and gives a different perspective. He says, but if I by the finger of God cast out demons, then is the kingdom of God come upon you. No, we cannot put off the kingdom of God to the remote future when Jesus will return. Jesus brought the kingdom at his first advent. He appears in the pages of the New Testament preaching the kingdom being at hand, declaring that it has come. And you remember, of course, the grand testimony of our Savior Jesus Christ as he stands before Pontius Pilate. And their Pontius Pilate brings the accusation. They say that you're a king. And Jesus says, you've said it. I am a king. Jesus is crucified under the statement, the king of the Jews. Of course, the Jews didn't like that. They wanted Pilate to rewrite it, to say he said he was the king of the Jews. As you know what the Jews had said? When Pilate came before them and said, I find nothing worthy of death in this man, and he proposes to let him go, the Jews say, we have no king but Caesar. Crucify him. When Pilate offers another man in the place of Jesus, that Jesus would be allowed to be let go, they don't want Jesus off. They want him dead. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But Jesus' grand glorious confession 
faithfully given was that he was indeed the king. And then he declared in action his kingship. When having been put to death, he rose from the dead on the third day, victorious not only over the waves, victorious not only over the demons, but victorious over death itself, the last enemy. What a glorious declaration of his rule. As Paul says in Romans, the first chapter, made and declared to be the Son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead. And then Jesus, having been raised from the dead to demonstrate that he had established the kingdom, took his throne at God's right hand at the ascension. <clears throat> Hebrews 1 verse 3 tells us that he ascended to the majesty and sat down at the right hand of God. Thenceforth expecting, according to the 10th chapter of Hebrews, his enemies now to be made the footstool of his feet. Now that's what Zechariah is talking about. Zechariah 14.9, he says, And Jehovah shall be king over all the earth. In that day shall Jehovah be one and his name one. Jesus comes as Jehovah himself, as the king, establishes God's kingdom, and now sits at God's right hand. And what does Zechariah say we should expect to take place in the day of Jesus' kingdom? Well, in verse 16, we read that it shall come to pass in that day that everyone that's left of the nations that came up against Jerusalem shall now go up to Jerusalem to worship. That those who had formerly been enemies of God's kingdom, those who had repudiated the claims of the king, will now come to worship as they should. Zechariah, as you should expect, describes this to us in the imagery of Old Covenant symbolism. He doesn't speak in day, he doesn't talk about freeways and automobiles and church buildings. He talks about a reformation and a change of the religious direction of the earthly nations in light of the religion of his day and the way in which the Jews worshipped and practiced their faith in that day. <clears throat> in fact, he says that they will come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. He chooses specifically that feast which was the feast of rejoicing. All nations will now rejoice in the Lord and his salvation. All nations will worship before him. And if they will not, they'll come under the heavy hand of God's curse and judgment. The day is coming when he will be king over all the earth and he shall rule so that if nations wish to be blessed, they will have to come to him and bow before him and rejoice in worshiping him. And so with that background, we finally come to the text that I want to talk about this morning, verse 20. Zechariah says, in that day, in the great day of the Messiah, in the day where Jehovah is king over all the earth, in the day when the nations come to worship God and to serve his holy name, in that day there shall be upon the bells of the horses these words inscribed, holy unto Jehovah. The horse's bells are going to have something written on them. Holy unto Jehovah. So what? What's so important about that? Well, let's stop and think about this for a minute. First of all, what does holy unto Jehovah mean? I think if we understand the concept of holiness that is found in the Bible, this text will begin to have more meaning for us. 
For something to be holy, both in Hebrew and in Greek, the term holy means to be set apart, to be different, to be consecrated. It carries often with it the concept of purity, but more usually, holy means set apart. Now, where do we see holiness? Well, obviously, we see it in God himself. God is holy. You remember that the seraphim, this order of angels that have three sets of wings, the seraphim, of which there are thousands, the Bible says, do nothing but fly day and night about the throne of God, singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. God is exalted above the earth. God is transcendent and pure and righteous. God is almighty and wise and sovereign. God is separate from all that the created order represents. He is the creator. He is the magnificent one. He is the wondrous one. He is the one who made it all, who directs it all, and the one to whom all must be given. And so the angels sing of his holiness, that he is set apart from the earth. But the day is coming when the horses' bells will have written on them, Holy unto Jehovah. When Jesus came into this world to declare and to establish the kingdom of God, we read that one day his followers came to him and asked <clears throat> that he would teach them to pray. And what did Jesus teach his followers when he taught them to pray? How does the Lord's Prayer begin? How does the pattern of prayer taught to us by the Lord himself begin? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Holy be thy name. To hallow is to make something holy, to treat it as sacred, to set it apart from ordinary, normal use, and to see its special position or qualities. Hallowed be thy name. May your name be treated as sacred, as consecrated. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. As the Westminster Larger Catechism puts very well in its exposition of this petition of the Lord's Prayer, when we pray for the hallowing of God's name, we are praying that God's will would be done throughout the earth and that everything would be consecrated to him. That's what it means that Jesus has brought the kingdom, that on earth God's will will now be done. His name will be revered and set apart, and everything will become holy service unto him. And so in that day, Zechariah says, in that day there shall be upon the bells of the horses holy unto Jehovah. What are horses' bells used for? Now, I come from Southern California, from an urban area. aren't as many horses as I'm sure you might find in the state of Texas or Arkansas. I don't want to get in trouble here this morning. But we've got horses. We've got a few. You see them on New Year's Day when you all tune in to see the wonderful weather we have there in the Promised Land on January 1st and the Rose Parade. And what do you see when you watch the horses, there's so many <laughs> so many equestrian units, as they put it in the program, 
Right. Are these horses, do people just take them out of the barn, jump on them, and ride down Colorado Boulevard? No, they don't. They brush these horses, they make them look nice and sleek and beautiful. And not only do they make the horses look beautiful, but they adorn the horses. And so the saddles are special saddles, and the blankets are special blankets. And even the harnesses are special harnesses. And the bridles of the horses are even decorated. And some will go so far in terms of this trivial pursuit of making the horses look special for parade purposes as to put bells on their bridles. That's the horse's bells. The most trivial part of the adorning of a parade animal. How important do you think the bells are? I think this is going to be earth-shaking. News will be made all the way around the world. Tokyo reports, no bells on the horses on New Year's Day. Absolutely not. I don't think people would miss them. I wouldn't miss them. You wouldn't miss them. They don't mean a whole lot. They're just minor. They're just trivial. You see, that's the greatness of this prophecy. Zechariah says, in that day, the most trivial part of life will be consecrated to the service of God. How far will the service of God go? How far will we see the extent of His reign? Where will we see the will of God be done on earth as it is in heaven? It will go so far that even the horse's bells will be holy unto Jehovah. Even the horse's bells will be consecrated to the service of God in that day. And obviously if the horse's bells are to be consecrated to his service, then everything else of greater importance must be as well. And so if the day is going to come when the horse's bells, even our parade adornments, are holy to God, then obviously a day will come when our political systems and our economic systems and our educational systems and our families and our arts and our sciences and everything that we do in this world will be serving God and following His will will be consecrated to His service, will hallow His name in all the earth, and will be holy unto Him. That's what Zechariah is telling us, and that's why he goes on from here to talk about the bowls before the altar. He says, And the pots in Jehovah's house will be like the bowls before the altar. There were two types of things in the tabernacle and in the temple. We have pots and bowls. The bowls were special. They were golden. They caught the blood of sacrifice. The pots, on the other hand, were used for cleaning up after animal sacrifice. When the ashes had to be carried away, they'd be put in these pots. So they were just common pots. But Zacharias says, in that day, the pots will be like the bowls before the altar. And then he goes on and says more, yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy unto Jehovah of hosts. And all they that sacrifice shall come and take of them and boil therein. The day is coming when every ordinary cooking vessel in Jerusalem and Judah will be like the sacred bowls before the altar. For you see, there's going to come a day when we no longer see this radical divergence between an area of holiness, the presence of God at the temple, and then the mundane areas, common areas of life. All of life will be like the tabernacle and temple. All of life will be consecrated to serve God. And every pot, your ordinary cooking 
pots will be as sacred because they are used for the service of God as were the bowls before the altar of God. And in that day, in the house of God, there will no longer be found a pagan, but rather only the people of God themselves. Now, I don't think this is an abrupt ending for Zechariah's prophecy. I don't think this is somehow Zechariah just kind of says some very strange things and then ends. I think this is a climax. I think it's an exciting climax. When Zechariah says the day of judgment will pass, God will come to be among his people, he will establish his kingdom on earth, and the day will actually arrive when every detail of life will be consecrated to his service. What does this mean for us today? living in the period wherein the kingdom of God has been established means that we should consecrate everything in life to him and to his glory. The total consecration of life for the service of God. It means that we're going to stop seeing things the way Time Magazine encourages us to see them. Now I'm not just talking about what Time Magazine says in its articles. That could be bad enough, I guess. I'm talking about the way in which Time Magazine organizes life. You see the way it organizes life when you look at the table of contents, Time Magazine. Have you ever done that? You could do it with Newsweek too, Time just one I like to pick on. Here you'll find articles on politics and the arts and you'll find politics say on theater, education, economics, and then you'll find another division of life called religion. And so you line all these up, and this is the way we look at the world. There are all these slices of life, the political slice, and the entertainment slice, and the religion slice, the medical slice, and the sports slice. Zachariah says the day is coming when the uh, table of contents of Time Magazine will have to be changed. Because then there won't be a slice that says religion for all of it will be religion. And God will be honored by our athletes. And God will be honored by our doctors and our teachers and our economists and our politicians and our mothers and our fathers and our preachers and all areas of life will be holy unto the Lord and religion will diffuse itself, the Christian religion will diffuse itself through every area of life. The first and the great commandment, according to the Decalogue, is you shall have no other gods before me. God says, you're not to have any other gods in my presence. Before me means in front of me. You have to kind of read the Hebrew there to make sure you don't get misled. <laughs> Maybe I've told you this before. When I was a child and I heard the first commandment, I misunderstood that. You shall have no other gods before me. I, I read like an elementary school child, you know. Before me means like when you line up to go into class. And you're not before me. God says... You can have other gods, but they've got to be behind me in line. Is that what he's saying? Don't have any other gods before me. Make me number one. I've got to be the leader. No, what God says, you're not to have any other gods in my sight. And I see everything. You're not to have any other ultimate authorities in life but me. That's why we believe our children have to be educated according to the dictates of God's word. 
and we don't turn over our children to those who do not honor the place of God. Because when we do, they are being taught, be it math or history or literature, whatever it may be, they are being taught that in that particular way, there is an ultimate authority that competes with God. No other gods in my sight. No other ultimate authorities. No other lords. Jesus, when he comes into this world, says we can't serve two masters. We're either going to love the one and hate the other, or vice versa. It's impossible to serve two ultimate masters. The day is coming when God will be one over all the earth. Religion diffused through all the departments of life. And will finally keep the first and great commandment. Jesus tells us that that demand can be seen also in the exhortation of Deuteronomy chapter 5 that we should love the Lord our God with all of our heart, our soul, our strength, and our mind. Everything that is in us, we are to love God from the heart because out of the heart are the issues of life. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10.5 that we are to make every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So we no longer think our thoughts with respect to what would it be? Our entertainments, the way we raise our children, how we spend our money. We have our thoughts over here, but then we think God's thoughts when it comes to religion. Now in that day, every thought will be made captive to the obedience of Christ so that we obey him in everything that we do. And that day he will be king over all the earth. And that day the first and great commandment will be kept and men will love God with all that is in them and that day every thought will be made captive to the obedience of Christ. Or we can see this in one other way before we end this morning. In John the 17th chapter, Jesus, before he goes out to be betrayed, tried, and crucified, prays for his people in the Garden of Gethsemane, what is often called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And in John 17, verse 17, this is what he prays for us who belong to him. He says, Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. Notice, sanctify them. Make them holy by the truth. To make God's people holy is to make them different from the world that they might be set apart from common use, that they might not blend into the background and be like everybody else and go with the flow in the world. Make them holy. Make them different. Set them aside, God. Consecrate them. And how will we be so consecrated? What will make the difference? What will transform us and make us unique in this world? Sanctify them by the truth. Thy word is truth. In that day... Even the bell's horses, the horses' bells will be holy. Even the common cooking pots in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to the Lord because in that day they will be sanctified by the word of truth. In that day they will be true disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ who abide in his word and hang on everything that he says and seek to apply it to everything that they do. Peter had to learn a terrible lesson in the Garden of Gethsemane and at the trial of Jesus and then at the empty tomb. 
When we read Peter's first epistle, it doesn't surprise me then, given what we have been studying this morning, that in 1 Peter 1, verse 15, he says that like as he who is holy has called you, so you be holy in all that you do. In the same way that God is holy, so you be holy, Peter says, in everything that you do. That's what Zechariah was talking about when he had that very strange verse that I hope now makes a great deal of sense to you when he said, In that wondrous day when Jehovah is king over all the earth, even the bells on the horses will be holy unto the Lord. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would take us and change us and transform us, that we would more and more reflect your glory and holiness that you would take away our waywardness and rebellious hearts, that you would give us humility, that we might not think there is a wisdom of our own, but rather teach us to bow before you and to learn that the beginning of all knowledge is the fear of the Lord. We pray that you would transform us so that we would not be conformed to the ways of this world, rather transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we might prove what is your good and perfect will. Do make us true, holy sacrifices to you that as we are alive in this world, we might yet live as people dead to themselves and alive to you. We ask that you would not allow us to restrict our Christian confession and our Christian commitment to some narrow domain of what we do in this world, but that you would show us the vision and the necessity of making our following of Jesus Christ universal, all-encompassing, and comprehensive. We pray that you might challenge us this day to follow you in everything that we do, and everything that we say, that we might make your word central to our entire lives, and not just what we do on Sunday, not just what we do when we have our private devotions, but when we go to work and when we enjoy our entertainments, and when we are involved in this world in any way, we pray that we would recognize and advance your claims as the king over all the earth. Do hasten the day, Lord Jesus, when we will see written upon even the bells of the horses consecrated to God. For we pray in your blessed name. Amen.